This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Hope your day is going well and glad you could spend some time here on the Country Hour this afternoon. The Premier, Roger Cook, keeps getting questions about the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. There's real concerns about the implications of that act and he is saying again today that he is taking an instructive, a collaborative and a partnership approach to the introduction of the Act. We'll hear from him shortly here on the Country Hour. Also today and before the news headlines at half past 12, the former WA Commissioner to Indonesia says Indonesia's concerns over a detection of lumpy skin disease in livestock shipped from Australia are genuine, but it also exposes some underlying trust issues in the relationship between the two countries. We'll get his thoughts shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the Western Australian government is prepared to ban alcohol from mine sites if companies don't make a concerted effort to tackle sexual harassment and bullying in the mining industry. This was mentioned just before the start of a mining conference being held at Perth Stadium today. Michelle Stanley is there. Michelle, this is all tied in with the Speak Up Reporter campaign launched by State Mining Minister Bill Johnston. What did he have to say this morning? Yeah, essentially, he said, Belinda, that, that he would be open to mandating a ban on alcohol if these issues around the culture in the mining industry, the resources industry, doesn't change. So it was in response to questions about this sort of issue of culture. This forum I'm at today, I've just found a quiet room outside because there are 1,100 people here um, talking, hearing lessons um, from different people within the industry after the Enough is Enough report, which was that um, report which shined a spotlight on some really horrendous examples of sexual assault and harassment in the FIFO industry in particular within resources. So uh, Minister Bill Johnston has announced as, as part of this summit this new hotline for people to call and report instances of bullying and harassment. So that's in an effort to try and see a reduction in those behaviours and the, the attitudes. Um, and it'll be largely up to the, the companies to try and change the culture to see the changes, you know, um, as part of it. But um, but he said, yeah, he would he would be open to introducing a mandate if these changes aren't made and, and if the, the culture doesn't shift. And he, off, he also offered this warning for any company that doesn't do enough to tackle sexual harassment. If we don't see performance improvement, and obviously government would have to act. But our, our view is that the industry is ready to change and we want to work with industry the workers, the, the employers, contractors. We want to work with the entire industry uh, to see improvement. We know that there's a long way to go, but we also know that it's not just about the resource industry. We know about it's about the entire community. And it, when, when there's still disrespect of women in the community, then I would, I would think that there'll still be disrespect in the mining industry. So, yes, we need to work with the mining industry to improve, and if we have to go further on regulations, we'll always look to that. But 
this is a community problem. We want to work with the resource industry to improve their performance. We're pleased that the, so many companies are now making commitments. We now need to see improved uh, performance. We need to see uh, better outcomes. And uh, when we see those better outcomes, then we can, uh, we can mark that. But we also know that we're only at the start of this journey and it's going to take uh, a, long, uh, a long walk for everybody to make these improvements. And Michelle, you did mention earlier that the Minister, Bill Johnson, also uh, was there talking about how sexual harassment can now be reported directly to a works to WorkSafe via a 1800 number. What is that number? Yeah, so this is as part of the Speak Up reporter campaign. That number is 1800 678 198. It's also used for reporting of other mine safety incidents to WorkSafe. So it'll be run by WorkSafe. There'll be two dedicated people to that hotline. But I guess that kind of talks to the, the way that they're trying to look at issues of sexual harassment, bullying, um, you know, sexual assault, that kind of thing, as a workplace issue, like a safety issue. So if someone falls off a ladder and breaks their leg, um, you know, it gets treated in a very particular way and, and they don't want harassment to be treated any differently. That um, work, that sort of Speak Up report at campaign and that new WorkSafe um, hotline um, for these types of reports is one part of two programs which were launched this morning. So this is all in an attempt to create a safer workplace for everyone in the mining industry. Um, there's also the Mars program, which is the Mental Awareness, Respect and Safety program. It's been running uh, about a year now. But as part of that Mars program, a new Respect in Mining program was launched today. That's a 12-month pilot program working with a company called Goldfields Australia. And that'll sort of create tools and help to provide support and guidance for companies on how they can review their policies and procedures and kind of monitor that workplace culture. And that's particularly important for some of the smaller companies, not your Rio Tintos and your BHP, but some of the smaller companies that might not have, you know, the same few hundred people working in, in HR and people and culture. And the WorkSafe Commissioner there at the conference today, what does um, the Commissioner think of that idea of banning alcohol from mine sites? Yeah, I actually had a one-on-one chat with Davin, Karen, uh, Darren Kavanagh about this and to be honest, he wasn't too keen on it. He wasn't too keen on discussing it because alcohol is really just one aspect of this and, and from what the WorkSafe Commissioner told me today, there is a lot more to it. So he doesn't really want the conversation to focus on alcohol. He wants to kind of address the issue as a whole and, and not have alcohol as sort of a scapegoat for want of a better word. So he wasn't too keen to see any, any sweeping bans or mandates or anything like that. Um, but he, he, yeah, we, we had a chat about it and, and I was, yeah, interested to hear what, what he said about that. Uh, really great, uh, Michelle. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Uh, there's a lot of people there. I'll let you get back to the room where all the action's taking place. Thanks, Blender. Michelle Stanley reporting in from that mining conference underway at Perth Stadium today and uh, a couple of interesting issues there talking about sexual harassment, um, the possibility of even banning alcohol at some mine sites if companies don't make a concerted effort to tackle sexual harassment and bullying in the mining industry. And the launch of that number two, uh, where sexual harassment can now be reported directly to WorkSafe via that 1800 number, 1800 678 198. This is The Country Hour. It is 12 past 12. Well, the Premier has reiterated that he is taking an instructive, collaborative and partnership approach 
to the introduction of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. Roger Cook says one of the first things he did as Premier was set up the Implementation Group, which is all about working with industry, stakeholders and the community to understand their concerns and also their obligations under the Act. He says if necessary, changes will be made. We're up for change if that's what's required. The regulations or the legislation? The regulations. The regulations specifically uh, because that's what we can do in the short term. Uh, But we'll continue to work with the community to understand their anxieties. And I understand there are anxieties. I understand there's questions. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of fear. I mean, what are you talking about specifically? I mean, there are so many things they're worried about, what they can and can't do, the confusion there, the fact that they have to pay for surveys. There's concern that Aboriginal organisations may take advantage of landholders and farmers. Now, that they are legitimate concerns that they have. So what are you looking at in the regulations? I think they are legitimate concerns, and so we're looking at all those elements in relation to the laws. We want to make sure that we work with the community around these laws. There have been uh, uh, some time in the making. The laws were actually passed in 2021, and so uh, this has been a long-term project. It's a very complex piece of legislation, and so I understand that there is some anxieties as a result of that. So we need to continue to work with the community through our implementation council but also the um, the minister himself has been working with industry groups to understand their concerns and to see what changes need to be made if that's what they need. It sounds like they do want change. Can you be more specific about what it is you're looking at? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be advised by the implementation group in relation to that. That group has, has got industry representatives, it's got community representatives. It's about understanding what those anxieties are, how we can make these laws work better. I think everyone, everyone would agree that protecting Aboriginal cultural heritage is an important objective, an important principle that we have to enshrine here. We want to make sure that these laws achieve that, but don't inhibit development and don't, as you say, um, introducing that element of fear. Because WA Farmers, a lobby group, is seeking legal advice to clarify whether the government can actually impose heritage over and above property rights. Now, if the barrister's advice is to proceed, this could end up in the courts as a, a legal challenge. Are you prepared to fight this to the High Court? Well, we're prepared to work with all industry groups. If that and, involves and, taking a legal road? Well, we need to understand what those what those concerns are and that's what we're doing at the moment. It's about working with the community, making sure we understand their anxieties, also helping them understand their obligations under the Act in terms of protecting Aboriginal cultural heritage. But let me just put on the record very clearly... The, the farming groups are, are one of the industry groups least affected by these laws. If you, are, if you currently run your crops, you graze your, your, your sheep and your cattle, you can continue to do that. You can uh, repair fences. You can do everything that you've done in the past. Um, but we understand that there are anxieties out there and so we're going to work with industry to make sure that we can uh, alleviate those concerns where they exist but also adapt the laws where there's complexity. Premier Roger Cook with Nadia Mitsopoulos. 16 past 12. Well, as the Premier just told you, he is open to changes to the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act's regulations. The WA opposition leader Shane Love says he'd go a step further. He says if elected, changes would be made to the Act. I think it's uh, fundamentally important to acknowledge that uh, up front that uh, uh, we expect that all West Australians would like to see cultural heritage protected for Aboriginal people. That's not a disputed point. Uh, what is in dispute is the way that it has been done by the government. And I think what has happened 
is actually runs the risk of uh, stirring up, I think, uh, division in the community. So how do you make sure it doesn't turn into that point? I keep coming back to the point of providing an alternative that we would go back to the drawing board, we would look at the legislation anew, and we take everybody's concerns into account and rewrite the legislation so that it is something which the whole of the community can embrace. WA Opposition Leader Shane Love with Tim Wong-Si. Well, that is music to the ears of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association's Private Property Rights Committee. Chair Gary Peacock says changes to the regulations of the Act won't go far enough. Gary, why does the Act itself have to change? Uh, Belinda, the fundamental first part I think is to truly understand the Act and understand where the weaknesses in the Act are. So the, the process that we've been undergoing for a considerable period of time now is to actually not understand the ins and outs and down, uh, the, down in the weeds of the Act, but what the implications for the Act are. And the, the legal opinion from a number of sources that we've spoken to is that fundamentally the problem with the Act is, is the Act is indefensible. When you have an indefensible Act, of course, it, it leads to a complete and utter lack of due process. So what that means is if you are charged, no matter how hard you try to comply, if you are charged under this Act, there's a pretty fair chance that you're not going to get a fair and just outcome. So, you know, we, we start from that point and then, and then we work our way forward about what is in the Act, what are in the regulations that make it so hard for innocent people to actually defend themselves. The Pastoralists and Graziers Association then getting legal advice, as is the other key lobby group here in WA, WA Farmers, is also seeking legal advice to clarify whether the government can impose heritage over and above property rights. It's getting a, a barrister's advice on that. And if the barrister sort of said, look, you've got a case here, this could be fought out in the courts as, as a legal challenge, possibly going to the High Court. Do you agree with the approach by WA Farmers? I'd have some reservations, to be honest with you. Why? Um, because I can guarantee you, and it won't cost you 30 grand, that heritage is definitely a state's right. When we get into the culture, again, and the interaction between the culture part of the Act and native title, there could well be an argument, and again, a process that we started two months ago was to actually have discussions with, with people that we've been dealing with, again, for 30 years around native title, around property rights, and having that discussion with them, and that, that will progress. But So have you joined if, forces with WA Farmers? No. no. Why not? Uh, well, we started this process months ago, and it's, and it's outside the PGA. Well, the PGA sits... In, with a, a group of like-minded people and have done for years and years and years and years that have that have been looking at these issues and have been looking at, at the court process in the defence of property rights. So so we, there is a process that we're involved in that's well, well advanced and has been well advanced around a, a large number of issues over a long period of time. So WA Farmers is, is going to spend $30,000 getting a, a silks advice on this, whether heritage can be imposed over and above property rights, and you're spending more money on the other side looking at the legal avenues, doing the, the same sort of thing? No, at the moment we haven't spent a cent, Belinda, because we, we've got relationships and, and an understanding in the broader community. It's going to take the whole community to do this, not, not, not a farm lobby group. And what's your it's, legal it's gonna, advice? Is, is this worth pursuing? 
So, so, so it, it's a process, Belinda. You, you, there is no law against bad laws. The only law against bad laws is at the, at the ballot box. So, so what you what you actually need is a case. You you need a case, and then you need to to to, to have a legal opinion on that case in in law, and then you need to then take that court case case to the high court. So, so just saying you're going to go to get the high court because you don't like the law is very shallow, and and fundamentally not understanding the law and how the law works, in my opinion. So what's the um, next step here, Gary? I mean, how is this sorted out? Because there's no doubting that there are a lot of concerns, a lot of confusion about this act. What's How do you proceed forward to sort it out? Well, so the, the process that we've engaged in is sitting down, as I said earlier, and working out where the weaknesses in law are and then coming up with good, sound, logical, rational answers and taking them and putting them in front of the government on behalf of the whole community, on behalf of the pastoral members, the contractors. People tell me that the later, a lot of the meetings that they go to, uh, these, these information sessions, it's not just farmers and landowners. There's contractors, there's builders, there's, there's earth-moving contractors. This is a whole community. The next children's hospital to be built in Western Australia is under these laws going to take years longer than it should. It's going to cost an absorbent amount of money. This, this is a whole of an economy situation. So, so looking at it through the narrow eyes of a group of farmers in the wheat belt of Western Australia is short-sighted and is only going to cause harm and, and further erode property rights, in the opinion of the, of the, the subcommittee of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association of Western Australia that deals with these issues. I mean, what their, their notion of asking the government to do a survey on, on all, all farms in Western Australia is one of the most silly things I've ever heard, because if, the, if they understood the property rights history, they would understand the last time the government undertook a survey to, to identify sensitive sites in Western Australia, we ended up with the Environmental Sensitive Areas Act. And what that did, if you're going to do a survey of the whole of Western Australia, I'm presuming the most efficient way to do that will be through a desktop survey. And what you're going to find as an end result of that survey is that every rocky outcrop, every creek, every stream, every waterway, every hole, every depression is going to be declared a site. And as it stands under the Act at the moment, the only way you can get a site, a declared site, off the map is through the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Council. And it's obviously not going to be in their interest to, to do that. So I say the, the implications, in my opinion, are broader than just the farm sector. If you're a horticulturalist, you've got real problems because you can't, you know, if you've only got a small area and 100% of it's utilised and Aboriginal Cultural Heritage does spring up on your farm, you can't shift the dam or the fence or the crop, you know, the cultivation practice, whereas the broadacre farms can. Instead of building the shed there, you can build it over there. It might be of an inconvenience, but it avoids a lot of grief. Where is this all going to end up, Gary? Well, you know, you could be party partisan in this place and hope it stays up on the front page of the West Australian and it stays on Sky News and it stays on the ABC until the next election, Belinda. Gary, good to talk to you. Thank you. Good on you, Belinda. Gary Peacock, he's chair of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association's Private Property Rights Committee. 24 past 12 on the text. Michelle in Wagen says, could you ask the Premier the simple question of why property under the 1100 square metre area is exempt from the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act due to it already being disturbed and yet farmland is not? Farmland has been disturbed just as much as the family home in Perth. Either he does the whole state or he has to abandon the scheme, according to Michelle. This from Mac as a town planner. Imagine if shires introduced planning schemes with no designations or actual plans 
and just said, oh, well, make it up whenever you want to do something. It doesn't work, says Mac. And Tracy says, Roger Cook has clearly never been on a farm and has no idea how they operate. Uh, this too from John Hassel, president of WA Farmers, who does agree with the PGA on this point. Um, sadly, these are just platitudes coming from the state government. Unless and until there are changes made to the Act, then there is no change. Changes to the regulations can be changed back just as easily. So the PGA and WA Farmers both agreeing that changes to the regulations aren't really going to get anywhere. It does need to be changes to the Act itself. The text is 0448 922604. Text through. Have your say this afternoon. 25 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. An update from the newsroom shortly and uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia taking a good look at interest rates. That announcement coming up shortly. We'll bring that information to you uh, as soon as it comes through, whether it's on hold or whether it goes up. I don't think it's coming down. <laughs> I think the two choices are on hold or going up, so we'll bring that to you shortly. Just before news headlines, the former WA Commissioner to Indonesia says Indonesia's concerns over a detection of lumpy skin disease in 13 cattle shipped from Australia are genuine, but it also exposes some underlying trust issues in the relationship. The LSD detection prompted the Indonesian government to suspend imports of live cattle from four Australian export facilities, one here in WA one in Queensland and two in the Northern Territory. Trade is still permitted to continue from 28 other licensed export facilities. And Australia's chief vet, Dr Mark Shipp, says Australia remains free of lumpy skin disease and he believes the cattle became infected on the journey or on arrival in Indonesia and testing is now underway to prove that. In the meantime, former WA Commissioner to Indonesia, Ross Taylor, says there's definitely some politics at play. The lumpy skin disease issue, you know, I think that's real. I think the, the, the concerns are genuine. But like all things to do with Indonesia, you need to read into that. And I think in a, in a, in a broader context, you know, as we know in recent years, particularly during COVID, we've seen a huge spike in the price of live cattle exports and and the the vast majority of live cattle exports to Indonesia, which is still our biggest market, ends up in what we refer to as the Indonesian wet markets. And that's really where the 100 million lower class and just middle class people quite often shop. So when prices skyrocket, as they have done, this puts enormous pressure on to those lower and middle class people in terms of buying this source of protein uh, and the like. So very quickly, that becomes uh, a domestic and political issue. They are very, very worried about the activist process here in Australia, whereby there are strong calls to ban live exports of live cattle. We've seen this happening with sheep, and Indonesia really expects that that will impact on cattle as well. And, of course, we have a terrible track record of abandoning Indonesia uh, in terms of live cattle exports going back to the previous Labor government uh, without any notice to Indonesia. So that that plays into the narrative where it just creates this concern that can we really trust 
our friends in Australia to uh, look after our, our mutual interests. You know, I think that's what makes the issue very, very complex. So with this this background in mind, what specific message do you think that the Indonesian government is trying to send to Australia with this this news about them refusing to take live export cattle from four Australian depots? Yes, well, again, internally within Indonesia, you know, there's there's a lot of self-interest prevailing there as well because it's, it's in the interests of certain uh, specific groups in Indonesia to, to have their own live cattle uh, industry and, and to get rid of Australia. And I think, uh, looking back, I think if there's been one area where, as an industry, we've missed a golden opportunity going back some years is that we, we have tended to treat the whole uh, live cattle export industry simply on what I refer to as a, a we sell, they buy relationship rather than advancing the relationship to a true partnership relationship where we have more Indonesians investing into our cattle farms in, in Australia and likewise Australia investing into uh, manufacturing plants in Indonesia whereby our live cattle can go beyond being sold in the wet markets. Do you think it's fair to say then that it's it's better to look at this as a symptom of Indonesia's fear of the uncertainty coming out of Australia more broadly. Oh yes, I think that's exactly what it is. And really, it, it uh, that's not to say that the current concerns about lumpy skin is not genuine. But it only takes something like that to act as the trigger to bring about the underlying concerns and fears uh, that are just sitting there waiting for. Uh, a trigger such as this. So um, it is quite right to say that uh, you know we, we need to address the, the immediate issue, but to say, is it symptomatic of deeper concerns and fears that Indonesia has? And to some degree, annoyance, um, uh, I think the answer is yes. Former WA Commissioner to Indonesia and founder of the Indonesia Institute, Ross Taylor, catching up with Alice Marshall. And Australia's chief vet, Dr Mark Shipp, says there are three vessels on the water at the moment that have cattle from the suspended facilities. And he expects those cattle to get a lot of attention on arrival in Indonesia and Australia will respond to any further detections. 29 to 1, and Jonathan Beale is here. What's in the news, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. The Prime Minister has accused his predecessor of trying to paint himself as the victim of the unlawful robo-debt scheme. In Parliament yesterday, Scott Morrison dismissed the findings of a Royal Commission which found he allowed Cabinet to be misled, provided untrue evidence, and pressured departmental officials over the scheme. Anthony Albanese says Mr Morrison is behaving as if he's a victim when it was actually thousands of Australians who suffered. Federal police have charged a former childcare worker with more than 1,600 child abuse offences against 91 children. The 45-year-old man from the Gold Coast is accused of more than 130 counts of rape and 110 of sexual intercourse with a child under 10. It's alleged the offences occurred in Brisbane, Sydney and overseas between 2007 
and 2022. And West Coast veteran Shannon Hearn has confirmed he'll retire at the end of this AFL season. Hearn is the Eagles games record holder, having played his 332nd game against North Melbourne on Sunday. He captained the club for five seasons and led the Eagles to their fourth premiership in 2018. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And in news just in, the Reserve Bank has left interest rates on hold for the second month in a row for the first time since it started raising them in May last year. The RBA's cash rate target will remain at 4.1% following today's board meeting. Just repeating, the Reserve Bank has left interest rates on hold for the second month in a row for the first time since it started raising them in May last year. It is 27 to 1 and still to come between now and the news at 1. Off to Mushe for the results of the sheep market and news just filtering through that there have been uh, quite a drop in prices today. Terry Birkin will go through the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at 1. We'll look at virtual fencing and the huge difference that's making to some dairy farmers in the country and also some vanadium news. We'll get to that shortly, just after a look at the weather. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Bob Tars on deck this afternoon. Bob, let's start with the Southwest Land Division. It, oh, in some parts, it feels like a touch of spring today, but um, that's going to be short-lived by the sounds of things. What have you got? Uh, yeah, um, so the reason it feels that way is we have a quite broad northerly flow ahead of our next cold front, which will cross the region during the day on Wednesday. So yes, for today, uh, really hardly any cloud in the sky, uh, some pretty nice warm temperatures throughout much of the region, some places reaching into the uh, low 20s to, uh, by about midday. So yeah, pretty warm for this time of year. But uh, yeah, there will be a quite sharp change. So that cold front is going to sweep across tomorrow. Uh, it's a pretty sharp uh, cold front. So there is going to be a sharp wind change associated with it uh, and some fairly good rainfall. So down in the southwest corner, expecting about 20 to 30 mils with isolated 50 mils, uh, but it is going to fall in a pretty short period of time. So it's going to be a, a fairly heavy rainfall period and then uh, the not a whole lot of shower activity in behind it. Uh, up the west coast, uh, for uh, especially coastal areas in the Midwest, we'll see about 10 to 20 mils, and that'll also extend through western parts of the Great Southern and then down uh, along the south coast. Uh, out through much of the weep out, we'll see about 5 to 10 mils, but uh, potentially the area around Corrigin and Meriden may uh, only see about 1 to 5 mils. Uh, it looks like that's probably the lowest uh, rainfall in the area would be. Uh, through that region. Um, there's a little bit of a chance that we could see a, a secondary low developing. So there's some uncertainty as far as how much rain we're going to have through inland parts of the Esperance region and, and eastern parts of the Great Southern. Uh, so those areas are, could be a little bit more rainfall, but a, uh, a little bit of difference in the computer model guidance. So we'll just have to see how it pans out. But those areas could see a little bit of extra rain uh, during uh, later Wednesday into Thursday morning before that clears away. Uh, it is going to turn sharply colder in behind that. So some places which are in the 20s today may struggle to reach uh, about 10 or 11 tomorrow, uh, especially through inland parts of the Great Southern. That looks to be about the coldest spot for tomorrow. But uh, yeah, otherwise, it is just going to be a pretty wet and uh, wintry day for many areas tomorrow. Uh, and then on Thursday, as I mentioned, there's not going to be a whole lot of shower activity. So aside from 
uh, right along the immediate west coast in the morning and then about the south coast, especially uh, from Bremer Bay on eastward. Uh, we will see some showers continuing, but for the most part, those will be clearing away to the east during the day. Uh, but again, some pretty cold temperatures uh, for during the day on Thursday uh, and also some pretty low snow, snow levels. So we could potentially with this system see some snow about uh, Bluff Knoll on Wednesday night into early Thursday morning. <laughs> Uh, and then as that clears away, aside from maybe the odd passing shower about the southwest capes uh, out through about Denmark, uh, we are going to see a spell of dry weather that lasts uh, from Friday right through the weekend uh, that will come with some quite cold temperatures, so a pretty strong ridge of high pressure building through southern parts. So as a result, those uh, clear skies and calm winds means uh, some some very cold uh, overnight temperatures, and there will be uh, frost through many areas through uh, basically inland from the coast uh, on Thursday night, Friday night, and again on Saturday night. And then we will see that cold starting to ease as we go uh, into Sunday morning. And again on Monday, uh, we will have another cold front that's likely to reach the uh, Southwest Land Division during Monday and Tuesday. Uh, still a little bit uncertain, probably not quite as strong a front as this one that's passing tomorrow, but we should see some decent rainfall through many areas. Again, uh, as is typically the case, the heaviest over uh, the southwest corner of the state. And then, Bob, what you see on the charts, what does that all mean for northern and eastern parts of the state? Sure. So that cold front is going to extend fairly far to the north. So uh, through northern areas, we could see showers extending out to about Karatha. There's not going to be a whole lot in the gauge for those areas, but uh, up through the northwest Cape and uh, Onslow, certainly we'll see a little bit of rainfall. And uh, the Gascoigne, many areas in the Gascoigne will see about 5 to 10 mils from this cold front. Uh, and then some decent rainfall out also through the gold fields in the Eucla as well as the south interior, especially southern areas where we could see about 10 to 15 mils as that uh, front moves through, maybe even isolated thunderstorms in the gold fields during the day tomorrow. Uh, as that will clear away uh, later uh, Wednesday uh, through the northwest of the state and then uh, extending through the southeast of the state by late Thursday. Uh, the high pressure bridge builds in and we will see those cold temperatures uh, right throughout the gold fields and uh, the Eucla and the south interior. Uh, not too cold up through northern parts. The, the real cold surge doesn't make it uh, quite as far north with this one, but we will see a return to the familiar southeasterly airstream as we go up into the Pilbara as we, uh, from Friday right through the weekend. And uh, during the weekend, uh, we will see the southeast really starting to increase across the Kimberley as that ridge strengthens through the region. And Bob, any warnings this afternoon? Uh, yep. So we do have uh, some marine warnings. Uh, there's a marine warning for the Perth coast, Bunbury Geograph coast, and Lewin coast for today. And then for tomorrow, a gale warning for the Lancelin coast, Perth coast, Bunbury Geograph coast, and Lewin coast. And then a strong wind warning from uh, Geraldton all the way around to the Esperance coast. Uh, for We also have a warning for uh, shape grazers tomorrow, and that includes the southwest, south coastal, and great southern forecast districts. Thank you so much, Bob. 21 to 1 here on the country are no real rain anywhere in Western Australia in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, except at Gidjiganup in the state's lower west, four mils in the gauge at Gidjiganup, and then at Mandra, two mils. And that is it. Now, some resources news for you.
and starting with vanadium today because an Australian-based company has been granted a water licence for its planned vanadium processing plant near Geraldton. Australian Vanadium Limited wants to mine vanadium south of Mekathara and it aims to process a high-grade product about 80 kilometres east of Geraldton. AVL Chief Executive Graham Arvidson says this water licence was a key approval needed to progress the project. What it means is we've secured the full uh, requirement in terms of water supply for our downstream processing asset proposed to go at Tanindawa, which is just east of Geraldton in the Midwest region. The licence that you have received is for 1.2 gigalitres of water per year for 10 years, but there is that 10-year clause on there. Does that create a risk pinch point in 10 years' time, that if the plant is still operating, the water licence isn't necessarily guaranteed? I think in in any license, there there's always an end date on it. So for our mine life is currently 25 years. No water source is infinite and no guarantees can be given. So there is a chance that licenses don't get extended, but it is standard practice that 10-year license for a facility like ours is given and that we would follow a very normal process to extend the license. Australian Vanadium Limited Chief Executive Graham Ardvidson speaking to Joe Prendergast about the significance of being granted a licence to draw water from the Irwin High Cliff Aquifer for a vanadium project in the Midwest. AVL still needs a green light from the Environmental Protection Authority and the company still has to reach agreement with traditional owners and secure finance for the project. And AVL will provide the vanadium required for a flow battery Horizon Power is going to buy to use in a pilot project in the north of the state at Kununurra. Horizon has signed a contract with V-Sun Energy to buy a 220-kilowatt-hour-long lasting battery. Horizon Energy's David Edwards says this pilot project is an indicator of where things will be going in the future with renewable energy. The reason we're looking at vanadium redox flow batteries is because we recognise our customers want more renewable energy in their systems. They want to be able to buy renewable energy. And we also recognise that uh, in order to be able to facilitate that much renewable energy in our systems, energy storage is going to play a very important role. The kind of batteries that we're using at the moment, the lithium-ion batteries, they're good for a certain number of jobs. But in order to capture the really large amounts of energy that we're going to need to decarbonise our systems, we need to look at batteries that can last longer and hold more energy. So the vanadium redox flow battery fits nicely into that space. So are residents of Kununurra looking at potentially cheaper power bills because of this vanadium flow battery? No, no. No, the reason we're testing it in Kununurra is because we had space in our power station And it's a really stable system for us to be able to test this technology. Future Technology and Innovation Manager at Horizon Power, David Edwards, speaking to Alice Marshall. 17 to 1. In other resources news today, the Western Australian government is negotiating with a South Korean energy consortium to build a green ammonium plant near Geraldton. It's entered into an exclusive negotiation period with Perth company Progressive Green Solutions in partnership with Korean companies Samsung C&T and Korean Midland Power Company to build a plant just southeast of Geraldton.
The facility is expected to produce up to 1 million tonnes of green ammonia per year using renewable hydrogen. And a request for an interview with the Energy Minister, Bill Johnson, was made just to find out more about this project. But interestingly, we've been advised that it's too early to comment and there really wasn't much to say at this point. 16 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. You head to Mushay just before the news at one to get the results of the sheep market today. I have heard that prices are down. Terry Birkin will go through the yarding and the prices for you shortly. First, though, some dairy farmers in Tasmania are having a bit of a sleep in, and that's because they're now using high-tech collars to help round the cows up for the milking. But as Meg Powell discovered, it might take a while before Australia's big dairy regions embrace the technology because there are strict laws on electric collars. Imagine this. You're on a rolling green dairy farm, but there's no fences, there's no farmer on a noisy bike rounding up cows on a freezing morning. Instead, the cows stick to a designated fenceless patch until they peacefully wander over to the milking shed. Is this the future of farming? Well, with the latest tech developments, it just might be. So sitting in front of me is our solar-powered smart collar. We, this is uh, fitted to the cow. This is Steve Crowhurst. He's from New Zealand agritech startup Halter, which makes solar-powered collars for cows. They use sound, vibration and electric pulses to herd the cows as well as monitor their overall health, all from your smartphone. And it's cutting-edge stuff. It's the first tech of its kind commercially available in Australia. So just like a traditional farm, cows have cues that they use to stay in their zone or come out of that zone and go to the dairy. And uh, all we do is either use very similar cues but... um, they, they come from the collar instead of a farmer or a dog or a motorbike or a fence or a gate. And we also swap out the visual cue of a fence for sound. So instead of a, a cow seeing a fence, they, they hear the fence. So sound lets a cow know when they're at a boundary. And if, also if you sound in the left ear, a cow will turn right. In the right ear, a cow will turn left. So um, those are the cues, as well as um, vibration is the cue to walk forward. This works. The, in the ears and everything, you can tell them the direction. Yep. I mean, that's not a new learnt behaviour for a cow. They, if, if farmers walk up one side of the cow, the, they'll, they'll move away from that side. So we just replicate that. And instead of a farmer, it's, um, it's through the collar. Do they deliver electric shocks as well? So they, the, the primary cues of the collar are sound and vibration. So that's how you, once the cows are trained, um, you primarily only use those two we call them um, primary cues to hold the cows in their, in their break, like you can see up on the hill there. But there is a low-energy pulse that's used for training, um, and that's how they associate the, um, what the sound cue means um, at the start. So that's used in the first couple of days. Um, and then once that association's built, then sound and vi- um, vibration are the main primary cues that we use. Right. Does it hurt the cow, the, the electricity? No, no, it's not, it's not there to hurt the cow. It's, it's actually one to 200 times less than a, a standard fence on a, on a farm. The tech has been in use in New Zealand for a while, but just last year jumped across the ditch to a couple of Tasmanian farmers. 
One of those is Yola's Duncan McDonald. We're on our um, 800 cow dairy farm at Yola. We're um, around about 300 hectares. We're milking uh, just shy of 800 cows. And we also have another farm a couple of kilometres up the road where we milk 550. So we put the collars on this farm in October and um, didn't take any long to realise that we should have them on both. So we managed to get collars put on the second farm in May. Um, so now we've got about 1,350-odd cows um, yeah, with collars on. What have been some of the challenges along the way? Uh, very few, to be honest. Um, as I said, it, it's not really much of a learning curve for the app. Putting all the collars on is a little bit of a job, um, but you've only got to do that once, um, and you get pretty good at it after the first 100. They, they don't really love them when they first walk away, but it, they settle down very, very quickly to them. Um, we were actually blown away by how quickly the cows picked up the cues. It just allowed us to keep farming the way we were, but made life easier. And it's given us options to, to different things that we may not have been able to do before. Describe to me how you use this tech on a daily basis. So, yeah, the, the, the app's sort of our, our main day-to-day uh, way of um, checking up what's happening on the farm. And then we then use the app for drawing every break that the cows go into a paddock on. So... We can be very, very precise with how much area we allocate our cows. So we use the app to schedule cows to come to the milking shed to be milked. We start milking around about 4am. Now the cows are waiting for us at the shed at 4am. No one has to go out to the paddock in the dark, drive around at 3am and then spend an hour sitting behind cows on the way to the dairy. That's all, all done. Um, we turn up, cows are ready to be milked. We can have multiple mobs that come in different lanes while we're milking wow. so it's just yeah total control and flexibility sounds pretty good so what's the catch for starters it's not free how much do these things set you back yeah so there's uh so the way that farmers use the system is through a subscription uh where um pay on a subscription basis and hold a supply and maintain and, and are responsible for the upkeep of the collars and there's a, a varying range of price um, relative to the features that um, farmers choose. Right. Uh, so in dollar terms? So the spectrum would be from $8.50 a cow per month for, uh, for the basic package and uh, up to fourteen fifty a cow per month. The tech is also facing legal barriers in Victoria, New South Wales, the ACT and South Australia. That's largely thanks to legislation brought in to protect dogs and cats. They're, they're not the same collar. Um, these are, are far more sophisticated and, and, um, than, than the collars that you are referring to. And we don't think there's a, a problem. Um, we uh, work with, with government to help them understand this technology, which is a first of its kind. Um, so there's a real appetite to learn all about it and understand how it works and, and understand Halter's seven years of, of deep R&D. And regulation is up for review in, in various states, so they're really keen to understand how the, the changing environment that of technology for agriculture and also the changing needs of farmers as as you know, um, new challenges come up. I'll just probably add to that that we've definitely had no um, concerns with, with that side of it since we've had the collars. And I don't think they'd be having the uptake that they are if, um, if there were any concerns. You know, they're our livelihood, so um, we want to look after them. 
Tasmanian dairy farmer Duncan McDonald finishing that report by Meg Powell, looking at the first commercially available virtual herding technology for cattle in Australia. On the text, Brad says, Hey, Belle, great story on e-collars. Any chance of asking the WA Agriculture Minister why it's not available here in Western Australia? Have been repeatedly asking and was meant to be announced in March 2023. We'll look into it, Brad. Thank you so much for the text. 0448 922 604. If you want to send a text through, be quick. It is eight minutes to one o'clock. Now, each planting on a horticulture property needs to be regarded as a small business. That is the opinion of one of the managers of an agritech company that uses high-resolution drones and artificial intelligence to help farmers optimise production. Aerobotics was established in South Africa, but now operates around the world in citrus, grape, almond, pecan, avocado and apple crops. The company's global head of agronomy is Leon Yuns van Feeren, who says more than 200 million trees are now digitised on a platform and 800 million pieces of fruit have been analysed. With everything growers are facing out there, the one thing you can truly manage is every tree or vine on the farm. The one thing you can truly control is the fact that you can collect data in and around your orchard to help you identify areas where there's certain factors Im- implicating or affecting your, your your yield or putting your yield at risk. And through using data and taking action on the data, it becomes knowledge that you can use to optimise every little piece of, of crop you, you farm. And in the end, it's optimising efficiency and it's optimising effective effective yield um, to, to optimise your return on investment for every vine or every tree. So when you're gathering this artificial intelligence, what kind of things are you looking for? I think that the two biggest things we're looking at from a drone perspective is the light handling capability of every tree, bush or vine we work with or the water handling capability where we provide accurate insights on on this tree or vine's ability to harness light for photosynthesis and then also its ability to transport water from a transpiration point of view so, so from a performance point of view, is this tree running at the full engine capacity? From an irrigation point of view, is there any anomalies that we need to address now to make sure that irrigation is not putting our yield at risk? And then, of course, it all happens in the orchard with, with a very finely developed app that we then use to take pictures to size the fruit at scale and then give the grower the opportunity to plan and manage his yield from there. Some of the work that Aerobotics does is gives farmers five sites on the farm that they should be focusing on immediately that could improve things. How quickly can those changes start to be noticed if the right actions take it? The time when you see a, a real spin-off is the time it takes to take action. We've got cases where if it's a, a blocked irrigation line, it's a simple case of flushing the line and you'll see a change in tree performance and you'll see a change over flights immediately. I think the biggest potential um, spin-off from the data is where you use the sizing data and you see a, a difference in sizing and you go out and you do a tree manipulation, whether being hand thinning or whether being um, increasing irrigation or, or a nutritional point of view, you'll see a size change within weeks. Nutritional changes normally within seasons and irrigation within a week or two. So it really depends on the risk. But in essence, we we see changes 
ranging from anything from a week. There's a lot of talk about the importance of sugar levels in fruit. For growers it's referred to as bricks. It's often something that is considered around harvest time but you think it's something people should be looking at a lot sooner than that. Why? I think bricks or sugar content within, within, your, in your, in your tree or within your fruit is a very good um, visualization of, of overall performance. So I think again through using, through using the, the tree insights where you know where there's areas of variance from a photosynthetic capacity point of view, tracking your bricks and, and the onset of your bricks throughout your season actually gives you the opportunity to track your performance and your engine room within your tree so that you don't get startled when you don't have the bricks you want at harvest. You actually can anticipate um, it throughout the season. So again, knowing where to measure through the use of, of the tools we provide, knowing where to measure, knowing where your size is at, knowing what that bricks means for a certain size, it'll give you knowledge and empower you to make more, more decisions towards optimising your production. Leanne Jans van Feeren from Aerobotics speaking to Kelly Hollingworth. Three minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sahara. Join me for The World Today. Reef danger. The Prime Minister welcomes news that the Great Barrier Reef has not been placed on the endanger list by the UN, but he concedes more needs to be done to protect it. And she's here, she's there, she's everywhere. Hayley Rasso stars as the Matildas defeat Canada 4-0 in the Women's World Cup. You'll hear from one of the former Matildas who was in the stands last night cheering on the Australians. Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. Sheep and lamb prices dropped about $10 a head at Mouche today. The final tally was almost 9,400, so numbers up by about 4,100 on last week. Breaking it down, 6,594 lambs and 2,779 sheep. Terry Birkin's been at the sale all morning. Hi, Terry, can you run through those prices? Hi, Belinda. Numbers almost doubled from last week's sale, with lambs representing about 75% of the yarding and around 5,000 of those are in store condition. Big drafts of merino lambs allowed restockers to be choosy and the combination of higher numbers, one abattoir closing for maintenance and others with lighter orders, prices across all lamb categories eased. Lighter lambs were mostly down $5 to $7, trade lambs easing up to $15 and heavy lambs around $5 a head. Mutton were also down $5 to $8, with mature rams being the only category unaffected. Crossbred store lambs sold from $5 to $54, while most bigger drafts of merino weather lambs in the 14 to 16 kilo weight range, making $25 to $47 a head. Crossbred merino air freight weights were selling from $37 to $77, while trade lambs eased the most, ranging from $50 to $100, easing up to $15, and heavy lambs selling to $125 a head. The heaviest merino weathers with the skin sold to $105, while merino ewe hoggets reached $85, and crossbred hoggets realised $112 a head. Young rams made up to $100, and mature slaughter rams remained firm, ranging from $10 to $56 a head. Bony ewes returned $10 to $40, medium ewes were selling up to $75, and heavy ewes realised $90 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mushay. Thanks so much, Terry. A couple of texts to get through on the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. This from William, who says, The supernatural and mythical creatures are not heritage or purely culture. That's a religion or creationist view. No government should ever impose that on anyone, let alone on freehold or pastoral lease. We need to separate church and state. 
preserve heritage by all means, but not feelings. And this too, why is nearly every waterway under the Act, but not the Swan River? Maybe they might lose some city voters. Thank you, Daryl. News time. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.